0: don't normally start an obituary segment with such festive music, but in South Africa, they're commemorating the passing of Nelson Mandela with song and celebration, and I think that's actually appropriate. Nelson Mandela, with the help of F. W. de Klerk, was able to completely change the nature of the government of the country in which he lived. Looking back from the perspective of the late 1970s, it is hard to imagine that South Africa would be able to make changes in the apartheid system that would avoid a potential bloodbath. That uh, much-envisioned catastrophe never took place, and the reason it did not do so is primarily because Nelson Mandela was there. The story of Mandela's life and what happened is not simply a matter of an evil government where white people triumphed over blacks, being changed into a one-man-one-vote democracy, the story is actually a hell of a lot more complicated. But when you take the time to walk through those complexities, the figure of Mandela emerges as only that much more heroic. At least that's the conclusion I came to in looking back over the past couple of decades. I was privileged to visit the Republic of South Africa twice, first in 1988 when Change seemed to be in the air, and again in 1990, when it was clear that change was happening, but it wasn't clear to anyone just where it would all wind up. Under the old system of apartheid, the people in South Africa were divided up into four groups, white, black, Indian, and mixed race. The mixed race included a lot of people from other countries in Asia besides India. And while everyone in the country was classified as being one of those four races, the thing to be was definitely white. The white people that ruled South Africa at that time came in two flavors. The first were descendants of the British Isles who spoke English. Actually, we should call them the second. The first, more properly, were the descendants of Dutch and French Huguenot settlers who were to blend into what would be called Afrikaners. The whites themselves had a bit of a shaky coalition. The Afrikaners were very conservative, and when the English started running uh, Cape Province and Natal Province in the way that they saw fit, the Afrikaners packed up and moved inland in wagon trains, much like the Old West of America got settled. Unfortunately for the Afrikaners who moved inland and wanted to be left alone to live life as they would see fit... Uh, the world's greatest deposits of gold and diamonds were then discovered in their territory, which uh, brought the English back in. There are many native tribes of black people in South Africa. The two largest were the Kosa, of which Mandela was a member, and the Zulu, from which we have the current president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma. Nelson Mandela was born in 1918 And although his father was a local chief, his his family apparently could not become members of the local royalty. Rather, they were the counselors to the royalty. As a young man, Mandela embarked upon a career that uh, I imagine he thought at the time would lead to him being a privy counselor to the local royalty. He never, of course, wound up there. His mother was a Methodist and sent him off to Methodist school. He was later to attend a Methodist college where he would meet Oliver Tambo, his future comrade uh, in the struggle against apartheid. At this stage in life, it is said that he developed a, a healthy respect for democracy and for people from all cultures. In his late teenage years, Mandela apparently had friends who were connected to the African National Congress, a movement dedicated to political change. But Mandela himself did not get involved. He was actually a vocal supporter of the British war effort when World War II broke out and involved uh, most of the world, including South Africa. But at age 24, Mandela himself would join the ANC. Living in Johannesburg, Mandela had met realtor and ANC activist Walter Sisulu, who secured him a job as a clerk at a law firm. At the law firm, Mandela befriended Gaur Ridebe, a COSA member of the ANC and the Communist Party as well, Also, Nat Bregman, a Jewish communist who became his first white friend. Attending communist talks and parties, Mandela was impressed that Europeans, Africans, Indians, and coloreds were mixing as equals. Mandela would later state that he did not join the Communist Party because its atheism conflicted with his Christian faith and because he saw the South African struggle as being racially based rather than class warfare. In 1943, Mandela began studying law at the University of Witwatersrand. Mandela was the only native African student, and although he faced racism, he befriended liberal and communist European, Jewish, and Indian students, among them Joe Slovo, who was one of the people he thanked personally upon being released from prison in 1990. He thanked Slovo and the Communist Party for the support they had given him and the ANC over the decades. And although the communists were pretty well organized and one of the few groups willing to stand up and try and bring about change in the South African government, it's certainly not true that all radicals and revolutionaries were communists, a point, I think, which was lost upon uh, uh, Western intelligence agencies, shall we we say, in the 1950s. Lost in all this discussion about uh, Nelson Mandela and his heroism is the fact that when he was arrested and sent away to prison and eventually served 27 years. It should be noted that the security forces that took him into custody in 1962 were tipped off as to where to find him by our own Central Intelligence Agency. The CIA was deeply involved in the Cold War at that time, and Africa was one of the political footballs. They hadn't done a very good job of penetrating the Eastern Bloc, but they figured that uh, they could... Expand the playing field to uh, other parts of Asia, Africa, South America, etc., which they did with enthusiasm. In their mind, Nelson Mandela was one of the bad guys. Now, when Mandela was 30, South Africa held elections. This is 1948. The National Party, dominated by white Afrikaners, was elected to power and began installing their system of apartheid, a system based upon complete racial segregation. At this time, Mandela began to gain more and more influence than African National Congress. He and his cadres began advocating direct action against apartheid, including things like boycotts and strikes. They were influenced by the tactics of South Africa's Indian community. We might want to mention that another member of South Africa's Indian community was Mohandas Gandhi. There's a tremendous Indian presence in South Africa, particularly in Natal province, which is in the southeast uh, side. I believe that Durban, South Africa, in fact, has the world's largest Indian community outside of India itself. And while we should note that uh, although Mandela is being openly compared to Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, and a rather pointed difference between Mandela and those two men, Mandela felt that um, a course of nonviolence was simply not going to be effective. Now, it should be noted that around 1952, Mandela had tried to go down that road, that, that path of nonviolent resistance advocated by Gandhi. But when they tried nonviolent protest, the South African government introduced the Public Safety Act. In 1953. It permitted martial law. In July of '52, Mandela was arrested under the Suppression of Communism Act and stood trial as part of 21 accused people. The defendants were found guilty of statutory communism. (laughs) Their sentence of nine months of hard labor was suspended for a couple of years. In December of that year, Mandela was given a six-month ban from attending meetings or talking to more than one individual at a time. By 1953, Mandela had become a full-fledged attorney, and in August of that year, he and Oliver Tambo opened their own law firm, Mandela and Tambo. It operated in downtown Johannesburg and was the only African-run law firm in the country. It was popular with aggrieved blacks, often dealing with cases of police brutality. By 1955, Nelson Mandela had come to the opinion that uh, the ANC had no alternative to armed and violent resistance. In 1956, Mandela got arrested alongside most of the uh, top ANC people for, quote, high treason, unquote, against the state. The prosecution argued that the ANC leadership committed high treason by advocating violent revolution, a charge which they denied. By 1959, other militant Afrikanists founded the Pan-African Congress, the PAC. Both the ANC and PNC campaigned for an anti-pass campaign in 1960 in which Africans burned the passes, somewhat like internal passports they were legally obliged to carry. And yes, my dear listener, you may not be aware of this, but uh, there are countries in the world where you have to have a passport to go from one part of where the country you live in to another. Last time I checked, such a system was still in effect in Cuba. In his role as an ANC leader, Mandela would leave the country in 1962 to travel to Ethiopia. He was a delegate to the Pan-African Freedom Movement for East, Central, and Southern Africa, which held a meeting. Mandela met with Emperor Haile Selassie and after the conference traveled to Egypt, Tunisia, and several African countries. He then left for London, where he met anti-apartheid activists, reporters, and prominent leftist politicians. He apparently returned to Ethiopia to begin a six-month course in guerrilla warfare, but completed only two months before he was recalled to South Africa. Back in South Africa, he traveled around the country disguised as a chauffeur. A little before this, Mandela had co-founded the Spear of the Nation movement with Walter Sisulu and communist Joe Slovo. Spear of the Nation was abbreviated as MK. In later years, MK would become the ANC's armed wing. Operating through a cell structure, largely devised by Mandela, the MK agreed in '62 to acts of sabotage and to exert maximum pressure on the government with minimum casualties. Attempted to bomb military installations, power plants, telephone lines, and transport links at night when civilians were not present. Mandela himself stated they chose sabotage not only because it was less harmful, but also because, quote, it did not involve loss of life and offered the best hope for reconciliation among the races afterward. The police captured the revolutionary Mandela, as mentioned with some help from the CIA in August of 1962. He was found guilty in the fall of that year, guilty of inciting worker strikes and leaving the country without permission. He was sentenced to five years imprisonment. A year later, police raided a farm where his ANC cohorts were meeting. During that raid, they discovered the notes that Mandela had made of his trip to Ethiopia, which caused him to be tried all over again. There were some documents found at the farm that indicated that foreign arms were to be unloaded in one part of South Africa and stored in other parts of the country. It's still debated to this day as to whether the ANC had agreed to that plan, but the authorities were to make it look pretty bad in court. At the second trial, Mandela and his uh, co-defendants were convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment, a sentence they were relieved to get because all of them had been led to believe that they would be hanged. The defendants did use the trial to highlight their political cause. At the opening of the defense's proceedings, Mandela gave a four-hour speech, which ended with those famous words, but if needs be, it's an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Those close to him advised that he insert that phrase, but if needs be, because otherwise to state that the ideals he was fighting for were those which he's prepared to die for might invite the authorities to uh, make him a martyr. Mandela was sent to prison and will remain on Robben Island for the next 18 years incarcerated. At one point, an escape plan for Mandela was developed, but apparently that got abandoned after it was found that uh, the planners were infiltrated by an agent of the South African Bureau of State Security who had hoped to see Mandela shot during the escape. While incarcerated, Nelson Mandela was apparently a model prisoner. When he was allowed to, he corresponded with anti-apartheid activists like Chief Budalese of the Zulu Nation, and Bishop Desmond Tutu. And I think I wouldn't mind editorializing for just a moment that, in spite of the brutality of the South African system, I think one can compare it rather favorably to certain Eastern Bloc countries. In my opinion, if Nelson Mandela had been captured by the Soviet state and imprisoned, it's hard to imagine he would have lived very long. Political activists outside of prison did not forget Mandela. By 1980, the slogan, Free Mandela, was developed by journalist Percy Cuoboza. It sparked an international campaign that led the UN Security Council to call for his release. Despite increasing foreign pressure, the government refused. And in this, it did rely on certain powerful Cold War allies. It should be noted, like U.S. President Ronald Reagan and U.K. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, both of whom considered Mandela a communist terrorist and supported the suppression of the African National Congress. But in the 70s and 80s, an international campaign to uh, punish the South African government for its, uh, its ways did gain considerable traction. I can tell you when I visited South Africa the first time in 1988, everyone wanted to sit down and talk politics with you. The South Africans did not like being seen as the bad guys of Africa. The rulers of South Africa had been trying for some time to avoid a uh, one-man, one-vote solution to their uh, political problems. In the mid-80s, South African President P.W. Berta and his National Party government had permitted colored and Indian citizens to vote for their own parliaments, which would have given them control over education, health, and housing, but black Africans were still excluded from the system. In February of 1985, Berta offered Mandela release from prison on the condition that he unconditionally reject violence as a political weapon. Mandela spurned the offer. He released a statement through his daughter stating, what freedom am I being offered while the organization of the people, referring to the ANC, remains banned? Only free men can negotiate. A prisoner cannot enter into contracts. In 1986 and 87, the ANC uh, ramped up its anti-apartheid resistance. Reactionaries in the government then attempted to use the Zulu Nation and Chief Budalese, who was their leader, to develop a movement called Inkata. It was designed to divide and conquer. Inkata was set to attack ANC members, and the black-on-black violence did escalate. But the government knew it had to change. By the time I visited the country in 1988, they pretty much agreed to release the political prisoners and the legalization of the African National Congress on the condition that they permanently renounce violence, they break links with the Communist Party, and they not insist on majority rule. Unfortunately for the government, Mandela rejected those conditions and insisted the ANC would only end the armed struggle when the government renounced violence. When I visited in 1988, it was a rather tense nation, but as I say, you could sense that change was coming of one sort or another. When I was there, I wasn't sure whether a foreigner would be restricted from going to visit Soweto Township. I went into one of the local police stations and asked, and they said, we don't, we don't care where you go. But when the Afrikaner cop said that, it looked at me like, if you're crazy enough to go there, go ahead. It was an experience. The wealthier parts of Soweto, containing the small but significant uh, members of the black middle class, looked reasonably prosperous. Attached to it, of course, was a giant shanty town with uh, corrugated tin roofs that, uh, you know, wouldn't have looked out of place on the outskirts of Tijuana. I think it was pretty clear in talking to uh, the white citizenry that they knew they were in a bit of a pickle. Blacks had been held back for a long time, and if they were to take over the government, they certainly feared retribution. They feared the very active communist component of the resistance uh, coming forward to take from them the things that they had. They feared nationalization of the industries, and they feared that the country would be taken over by a gang that was not fit to lead. It was clear that in the eyes of the world, Nelson Mandela was the symbol of opposition to things as they were in South Africa. But South Africans had grave doubts as to whether this unknown quantity, this this lawyer who'd been in prison for a couple of decades, well, what could he really accomplish? But no matter what they thought of him, by this point, Nelson Mandela was a force to be reckoned with. Much like our own George Washington, I think, uh, Mandela was one of the few people that seemed to be respected by just about everybody and trusted by most. In 1989, the conservative South African President P.W. Berta was replaced by F.W. de Klerk as state president. The new president was sure that apartheid was unsustainable. He unconditionally released all ANC prisoners except Mandela in July of 89. And I think one thing that worked to the advantage of South Africa being able to make the transition in forms of government was the decline at that time of the Soviet bloc. After the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 89, F.W. de Klerk called his cabinet together to debate legalizing the ANC and freeing Mandela. And I think it was clear to everybody by this time, the beginning of 1990, that if change was to come to South Africa and chaos was to be avoided, F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela were going to have to work together to make that happen. The two men were meeting at this time to help make all of that happen. At this point in time, I found myself back in South Africa and was there on February 2nd when at the opening of Parliament, F.W. de Klerk announced legalization of all political groups, including the ANC. There was optimism in the country at that time that things were going to get better. It was a very cautious optimism, but it was there. And the release of Mandela, everybody knew, was imminent. They just weren't sure when it was going to happen. I kept asking everybody, "When do you think? The papers were all full of it. Speculation about this, that, and the other. When will he get out? Unfortunately for me, it turned out the announcement that Mandela would be released the next day was made when I was on an airplane somewhere between Johannesburg and San Francisco. If only I'd known. As I arrived back in the Bay Area, I I literally walked into my parents' house to see on the television the first photograph of Nelson Mandela in 27 years taken in the presidential uh, office alongside F.W. de Klerk. It's uh, not at all an exaggeration to say that uh, the fate of the nation now depended upon what could be worked out between those two men. In 1990 and 1991, Nelson Mandela embarked upon a tour across Africa and a world tour during which time he was welcomed by President Francois Mitterrand of France, met with the Pope, John Paul II, in the Vatican, met Margaret Thatcher in the UK, and met the first President Bush here in the United States. He traveled to Cuba to meet Fidel Castro, whom he had long admired. He also met the President of India and Sukarno in Indonesia. It's worthy of note that he did not visit the waning days of the Soviet Union, although it had been a longtime ANC supporter. In 1991 and 1992, Nelson Mandela and his ANC allies negotiated with F.W. de Klerk and his governmental allies to figure out how to change the nature by which the country operated. It should be noted that Mandela was under a lot of pressure from those on the left. His communist allies wanted to see uh, the country completely revamped, industries nationalized. This was a route that Mandela did not go down. He felt that to do so would basically uh, isolate South Africa and eliminate any possibility of foreign investment, which I think it surely would have. He was also under a lot of pressure from his allies to uh, seek some retribution from the government under which they had all suffered. Mandela did everything possible to resist that temptation. One of his more notable quotes is that resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. Another one of his quotes that I like very much is lead from the back and let others believe they are in front. And I think that explains a bit of the miraculous transformation he was able to engineer in South Africa, which I think we need to discuss after taking a short break. So let's do that. Our obituary slash tribute to Nelson Mandela will continue in our third and final segment after a few messages. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.